Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There is a, a report. There is a report that has just come out that looks at. They, I think they do this every year, but it looks at the charities around this country to see which ones are doing a good job with your money. If you decide you're going to give to a particular organization that says they're going to do good work with that money, are you getting bang for your buck? That's what this is looking at and coming up with the list of the 10 best. I want to bring on the managing director of Charity Intelligence Canada. Her name is Kate Bain. She is, this is a national watchdog, as I say, that keeps an eye on charities around the country. Kate, thanks for doing this today. You're real welcome. Thanks, Scott. Uh, I want to get to the results of your study and the things you found this year and talk about the good charities that are out there, because that's really what your report is about. But uh, And there are a lot of them, by the way, because I know that on your website, you actually have the top 100 Canadian charities. So that means there's at least 100 good ones and probably more than that. But before I get there, I want to just ask something broader for a second, because I saw in the story today about your release of this study that according to Statistics Canada, 21% of Canadians gave to charity last year, at least from their tax returns. That seems like a really, really, really low number to me. Yeah, it is. And I have a lot of trouble with that number. So it comes down to data and statistics, statistics and damn lies. Um, If you have a husband and wife and they give to charity, they will only file their receipts on one tax return. So that's, it's the number of tax returns. So we should probably double that number at least, make it at least 40%? At least 40. And when people are asked, they're reporting that like sort of 80, 90% of Canadians say that they give to charity. Well, uh, oh, there's a whole other one. I mean, who's, so people are lying really about their giving. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a really murky area, and there's no clear numbers. The best numbers we find actually are released by the Canada Revenue Agency. Okay. And, and they are reporting how much money charities received. And that's the number we go by. So it's about $17.5 billion each year is given by Canadians to registered charities. Which is about double what is officially listed as being given to charities. So it's very, right. you're right, it's a very confusing thing. Because, I mean, the median, also in your story today, in the, in the release, the median total income across the country is about $300. And I was looking at the math, and I'm not good at math, I grant you, but considering St- Statistics Canada says that the median household income in this country is about 70000 that's under 1% that the average person is giving. And I've got to believe it's higher than that. I would too, and I look at the numbers and I look at the stats, and it just doesn't, it just doesn't relate to, to what we hear and, and, and the information we see. So there are lots of data sources. This is an area where you know, getting good data is really difficult. One more thing about this. Uh, there is a thing, I, I don't know if it's kind of like what you do in the States. It's called the National Center for Charitable Statistics. It's probably a little bit different. Uh, it monitors the giving in the States. And in the last time that it was able to do this, it found that the average income tax return showed $4,800 among Americans in charitable giving. Uh, are they, again, does this just speak to stats that don't really work or are Americans, is there some reason to believe they are way more charitable when it comes to giving their money away? I'm not an expert on American tax law, but I understand that, and especially with the new Trump legislation that's come through, only people who make over $120,000 have to have the ability to deduct charitable donations. 
So they would be the only ones reporting how much they gave to charity. So you're comparing every single Canadian who completes a, an annual tax return with the sort of people in America who make over 120,000. So it is not an apples to apples comparison. Okay. But so it, it, it's it's just it's just weird how the different tax structures and and the different reporting are. So we don't have to feel like we are the greediest people on the <laughs> on the planet here in no. Canada. No, and, and, and yeah, and, and every year there's that headline that Canadians are stingy and we aren't as generous as Americans. And I do pull my hair out because it's just based on, one's based on the IRS income tax returns of the wealthiest Americans compared to the tax returns of all Canadians. It's just not, it's not even a fair comparison. But yes, I would say that Americans are more generous. They have a different tax structure. They have less subsidized health care, etc. And, and, and they are also more Christian. And you, you know that religious people have a higher level of giving than Canadians. We're much more secular. We're bilingual. We've got, you know, Quebec has, its very, has very different giving patterns. And uh, we're, we're just a different country. So, yes, it's, it's, good to be, it's good to be generous. We should always measure up and make sure that we're being generous. But I don't think that these statistics accurately re- reflect reality. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're chatting about charities in this country. We're talking about charitable giving. There's a new report out that is saying or giving some idea of which charities in this country are doing a good job, which are doing a better job, which are doing a great job at using your money appropriately when you give it. We're chatting with Kate Bain, who is the Managing Director of Charity Intelligence Canada. That's the name of the company. And Kate, it is, um, what is the hallmark? When you're, when you're studying this, what's the hallmark of a good charity then when it comes to deciding who are the best ones? And the interesting thing is that every donor is going to have a different opinion. And what we do at Charity Intelligence is kind of like the consumer reports. We just put a report up that has all the facts in one place so a donor can be informed. Now, some donors want to say, I want to give to the cheapest charities. I want to give to the charities that have the lowest overhead costs. And some donors will say, I don't want to give to any charity that has any staff who makes over, you know, $50,000. So we just put all that information together um, for donors in one place. And we have reports on over 760 Canadian charities, mostly the big ones, absolutely. We sort of follow the money. But uh, we've got 25% of those are, are small charities with donations under a million dollars. So for us, um, transparency, is a charity financially transparent? Is it accountable to its donors? When you read its annual report or when you read the information on its website, is it actually telling you something? Or is it kind of like platitudes of, we helped millions of kids mm. you know, since we began in 1920? It's not telling you what's actually going on on the ground now. So that's the kind of information we look for when we're looking for accountable charities that actually you know, tell you what's going on, what's the problem, what their programs are doing. We also look at the financial statements. We have a financial background and we crunch the numbers. Do they have we, to make those, uh, to be a charitable organization, a registered charitable organization, do those numbers have to be available? No. Really? Uh, no. Yes. Welcome to Canada in 2018. Wait a second. So if I register as a charity and I want you to give me your money, I don't have to then make those numbers transparent so someone can study them? 
hello, hello. And that's like one of the biggest problems we see in the sector, something that we've been hammering on about for years and years now about financial transparency. We think it's best practices, especially if a charity receives more than a million dollars in donations. We want to see audited financial statements on the website. Now, here's what the rules say. Ottawa says any charity that receives more than $250,000 in donations should guidance have audited financial statements. Now, every registered charity in Canada has to give its financial statements with its annual return to Ottawa. So when we go to a charity's website, and it's a big charity, and we don't see those audited financial statements there, we will call, we will email, and then we will go to Ottawa and do the request for information. We will get those financial statements. We will crunch those numbers, and we will post the financial statements on our website so that donors don't have to go through all that rigmarole just to see the numbers. Okay, so when you do, when you are able to find the numbers, uh, as you said, there are people who love the idea of certain charities where the overhead is zero, where all like pretty much a hundred percent of what they give goes right to whatever chair, whatever uh, work or product that they're hoping it goes to. There are also others though. Without you, don't have to say the name necessarily, but what's the worst you've seen as far as the least amount of the dollar that you give actually going to what you hope it's going to? Oh, we've 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 rooted out so many frauds, um, and and those are the worst. Um, yeah, that that does make my blood boil when you see charities register and are just ripoffs. And I'd always thought before doing this work that frauds would be, you know, like the kind of GoFundMe people running around parking lots taking money from hmm. people. These were eighty, ninety, hundred million dollar organized wow. tax frauds. So, and so they were places that otherwise people would have thought of them as being respectable organizations. I, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know what people thought of them. But when we looked at the numbers, uh, you could just see that something was very, very wrong with these, with these organizations. We posted them up on our website, and it was great that the CRA, a couple of years later, had a look at these guys and uh, did, did a thorough audit, and they have been revoked. So we actually still have those up on our website so people can see this is what fraud looks like. This Mm. is where we get worried. And with every single one of those fraud charities, zero staff, zero overhead costs, you know, tens of millions of dollars flowing in at no cost. And sometimes it really does sort of go, is this too good to be true? Yes, it was yes. in that case. Let me read off the 10 quickly because we're short on time, unfortunately. Let me read off okay. the 10 that you've come up with as your 10 best this year. Against Malaria Foundation, Aunt Leah's Place, which is in New Westminster, BC, it's Youth in Foster Care, uh, Canadian Food Grains Bank, uh, CUPS, which is the Calgary Urban Project Society, Doctors Without Borders, people know that one, East York Learning Experience, Fresh Start Recovery Centre in Calgary, Jump Math in Toronto, One Drop Foundation, which is uh, sustainability for communities, Operation Eyesight Universal, that one makes sense. Um, So when people hear these, when they go and they find these, by putting these at the top of the list, what are you then saying? Is it simply that this is the best way to get your money through these to the places you want it to get to? Is that really the undercurrent of this? These are the biggest bang for the buck charities. These are the highest impact, and these are the top 10. These are a totally different breed apart from, you know, high-rated charities. These are tremendous organizations that have proven impact. It's evidence-based, and you can measure for every dollar I donate how much, how much of a difference is it making in people's lives. 
So we have good charities. We have the top 100 rated charities. And for a growing niche of people who are interested in investing and having their dollar have the biggest bang for the buck, these are the top 10 for 2018, a really phenomenal group of top 10 charities. Uh, if people want to see it, uh, www.charityintelligence.ca, you can go there, you can look up the charities, you can see there's a bunch of Hamilton ones on there, City Kids for one is on there, there's others uh, that you can feel confident, I guess, that, uh, that your money is going to the right place. Uh, Kate Bain, Managing Director of Charity Intelligence Canada, appreciate the time today. Thank you for this. Great talking with you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. While we here in Ontario are minding our business and trick-or-treating and doing everything else in Calgary, right now, as we speak, there is a rather acrimonious debate going on at City Council there. I mean, they are going at it, as I say, as we speak, about whether or not the City of Calgary should be bidding on the 2026 Winter Olympics. Now, this is a project that is right now pegged to come in at $5.23 billion, which is about a tenth of what Sochi, what Russia paid for Sochi a few years ago. And we wanted to bring this up today because even though it's in Calgary, this will, if it were to happen, this would affect you. Not only emotionally, because we do think of the warm, fuzzy feelings we had with Vancouver, and a lot of us would say, yeah, that was worth a few bucks. Sure, that was worth spending. I don't know what it cost me in taxes, but you know what? That experience was pretty good. I would pay for something for that again. But because the federal government's part of this right now, they've agreed to, would be almost $1.5 billion. That would be the federal government's portion. That's your tax dollars. We bring in a friend of this show. We've had him on many times before. Anytime we need to talk about something to do with the Olympics, we turn to him. Uh, Michael Haina from uh, the International Center for Olympic Studies at the University of Western, the guy for anything to do with the Olympics. Michael, we appreciate your time again today. Good evening, Scott. Great to be here. Uh, these discussions, I, I, we shouldn't be surprised, I guess, that the discussion in Calgary is coming down to people screaming at each other from both sides. Should we? They always become angry and acrimonious and difficult, right? Well, this is true. And I mean, two reasons. On the, other, on the one hand, you have Olympic enthusiasts and sports fans who are very strongly in favor of the opportunity to attract the Games to a host city. And on the other hand, you have folks who take a look at the budget numbers and typically based on previous experiences, don't quite like what they see there. So if you look at the sports, it's a great opportunity. You look at the cost, it doesn't look quite so good. Well, right now, uh, just for people who are trying to figure this out, it's $5.23 billion, and that's today's budget. $1.423 billion would be coming from the federal government, $700 million from the province of Alberta, $390 million from the city of Calgary, and the rest apparently they're saying will come from the revenues generated from the games. Do those numbers, when you hear them, you've been around a long time doing this. You're a you're an enthusiast for the Olympics. You're also a skeptic. Do those numbers sound realistic to you? Or if they vote yes five years from now, are we going to say this is double now what we're expecting? <laughs> My guess would be that that would be exactly what we say five years from now. Because this would be a first. In, you you have the numbers right on the money. And Calgary City Council, as you pointed out, is debating as we speak. Actually, they've been at it all day, I think. Yes. So oh, yeah. I'm following, following the Calgary Herald <laughs> Twitter feed 
<laughs> they are debating still. So, so they are going at it, and they are debating these numbers with great seriousness, as they should. But uh, I have to note that all the seriousness applied to these numbers could pretty much evaporate once we get closer to this kind of event, because over the last 30 or 40 years, this is this is Michael. This is not really your area because you're a, you're a an Olympic guy, not necessarily a political guy. But I do want to ask you this because it's really interesting. I think that the Calgary Council is voting or going to be voting on whether or not to proceed with this today, or at least to push it forward. But there is a planned plebiscite, a, a vote in Calgary that's scheduled for November 13 that is supposed to be asking the people whether they want to go ahead with this, that's on November 13th. It seems to me odd that council would want to make this decision today. Why would they just not want to say to the people, you know what, politically, way safer for us. Let's just throw it out there. And if you want to do it, fine, we'll do it. And if you don't want to do it, fine, it's off the table. I I don't know why they're even doing this today. Yeah, this is a kind of overlap. And city council thought they had been put into this position because they just couldn't get good funding support agreements from the province and from the feds, and the numbers just didn't add up. Um, so city council decided to do its own debate, as they're doing now, and the idea of the plebiscite was kind of thrown into the mix out of left field, as it were, and strangely enough, the plebiscite, in principle, theoretically anyways, is not binding, so I'm not sure that's the first non-binding plebiscite I've encountered in the Olympic arena. So even that might not be the last word. But tonight, what has to happen is either council nixes the whole process right here, then no plebiscite occurs, or council says, well, we can work with these numbers for now, and we'll put it out to the Calgary public. But when they do that, that also means they acknowledge the adequacy of the numbers they are working with now. So it's, it's a tricky position to be in. I wouldn't want to be a Calgary City Council. No, no, I, I think today's a good day not to be one, but it, it sounds like the province and the federal government are at least somewhat interested in having this, because again, last night there was this deal reach where they at least agreed to put up this money. Should they be interested? Are there, in your mind, are there real tangible benefits that come, not necessarily even to Calgary, but to, well, to Calgary, but also to Canada? Are there tangible benefits to this country to hosting an Olympics? Well, tangible, what could it be? It could be sports uptake. If the country is successful and feels a strong Olympic team, that might motivate people in the general public to take up those kinds of sports. The evidence for that is not very encouraging. And as I said, you have to have a winning team. If you end up in 58th place <laughs> medal rankings, that won't have much of a motivating effect. Uh, the city might have legacy effects, infrastructure being built, sports facilities being built, doesn't do much for the Canadian public. Uh, then lastly, of course, you have the goodwill and the enthusiasm and the pride in being Canadian when this kind of event is hosted in Canada. Uh, can you put a price tag to that? Of course you cannot, but you can at no point, I think, leave the whole budget problem uh, out of sight. Because these things are so unpredictable. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking about the Olympics, 2026 Olympics, the Winter Olympics that Calgary is debating as we speak 
whether or not they should be bidding on those. And again, if some of you are saying, well, why do we care whether Calgary bids on the Olympics here in Hamilton? Well, because at least right now, almost $1.5 billion from the federal government is going to be directed to this. And I suspect that by the time this rolls around, that number would be considerably higher. So your taxes are at play here. That doesn't necessarily mean you should be against it. Many people remember fondly the Vancouver Olympics and say, hey, if that cost me 50 bucks, that was a 50 bucks well worth it. I had so many good memories from that. I'm okay with spending 50 or $100. Others say, not a chance. Don't want a dime going to this kind of thing. Michael Hanna, who's the director of the International Center for Olympic Studies, joins us. And Michael, usually uh, when you talk about building an, an Olympics venue and doing something like this, the benefits of this, the legacy benefits come later because... Uh, when you look at Calgary's venues, for example, those that we had back when the Olympics were there in 1988 allowed athletes later in Vancouver and, uh, and, and years following that to do well in the Olympics. They had a bobsleigh run to, to, to practice on. They had the ski jumps to, to do. What, but is there any benefit to us as a country now to have an Olympics if we already have the facilities? Well, Calgary would say one benefit from that perspective would be that they will upgrade the facilities as they have to because they were built for an event which is, was not even half as big as what would roll into town if they decide to host these games. So these kind of legacy facilities always work well for high-performance sport, but your average person in Calgary or Edmonton or Hamilton or London cannot really expect to be able to use those facilities and they are for high performance. You mean you haven't gone off to Calgary to try the 90-meter ski jump? <laughs> no, but I've been in the oval. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little safer. Yeah, I dare say, yeah. Uh, yeah, because who, whoever, who, when was the last time anybody heard of Horst Bulau? I mean, I, he went off that jump and we never heard of him again. Who knows what happened? That's true, yeah. But, I mean, there are some positive spin-offs of these for athlete development. You have to have these facilities if you want to have internationally credibly, credible teams. So whether, whether the general public would be willing to support that with this kind of funding, that's an open question. That's a political question more than a sport question, really. Do you believe in the idea that we hear often about economic spin-offs in other facets of Olympic Games, tourism and all those other things? Do you believe that that has a massive impact? No, and the research on that is pretty unambiguous. So the those kind of economic tourism, construction, economic intensification benefits, they are usually quite significantly overstated. Because what happens very often is that money that would have gone to other economically relevant activities is rechanneled to the Olympics. So there's no overall positive outcome in the balance. Because these facilities exist, even though they may need upgrading, if we don't go for these games, if Calgary pulls out of this, is it a fair guess that Canada won't go for games, any more Olympic games? Would this be the last crack at it for us? Hard to say. This always depends on the local mood in the cities where these kind of bids of the hosting is being considered. So I don't think in that sense that this is a national decision. You and I might disagree with allocating federal funds to an event in Calgary. But the decisions are always made on the, in the local arena and with a very strong view to what the public sentiment and the public mood might be. 
which is why you know, I have this plebiscite and folks attempting to host bids in the Olympics have lost all the last eight plebiscites across mm. the sporting world. You and I, though, have talked about this idea before of doing kind of what Calgary is doing, and that is saying it makes more sense, seemingly, to return Olympics to cities where Olympics have already been held, where you already have the facilities. Instead of spending $50 billion on Sochi, let's go back to places where the facilities exist. may need some upgrades, but be way, way, way cheaper. So what does it say if Calgary doesn't do this? What does it say to the future of the Olympic Games if even this model of returning to a host city is now too expensive to do it? Well, then the IOC, as it already knows, has a really severe problem trying to promote the games in the future. I mean, next to Calgary, there's really there's hardly anybody left standing. We have Stockholm, who just got a new city government, who have already pronounced their intention not to pursue a bid. And then there's a joint bid out of Italy, where the joint cities have internal disagreements. So that bid isn't very secure either. And for 2026, the IOC will have nobody else left. So we'll end up going back to autocratic societies with dictators and governments that don't really care about taxes of their people, like China and Russia and other places like that. Well, sure. Guess where the next uh, Winter Olympics are? They are in China. So, <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's that political consideration. And the IOC has not been shy, of course, in placing the Olympics into such political systems and <laughs> If they can't afford to not do so in the future, they'll continue giving and assigning the games to autocratic societies and political systems. Well, if Calgary pulls out, maybe the 2026 Winter Olympics will be in Syria. We'll put one there. (laughs) The snow may be a problem, but the money won't. Well, it's no worse than in China, where (laughs) they have no snow either in the location where the games will be held. Michael Haina, who is the Director of International Center for Olympic Studies. We always appreciate you coming on and taking some time for us. Thank you very much. Thanks, Scott. I enjoyed it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Before we do anything else, though, let me bring in our good buddy, Bubba O'Neill. Now, I could ask him to sing the song. I'm not going to, but I know that he could do this, and I know he could do a bang-up job with this song. I know the song, and I am not singing it. <laughs> Maybe we'll have you back at the very end of the show to do a rendition. I am not singing it. <laughs> <laughs> I re- now I really want to hear it. Maybe <laughs> maybe tonight you can close out the sports and weather with your version of this. It's Halloween. you got to do something. Well, perhaps Scare you, people that way. No, I, I, I dressed up as a sportscaster today. That's as, <laughs> that's as much as you're going to get out of me. Well, Maybe more in my younger days, but I'm an old man now. Please tell me you dressed up as Marv Albert then. I want to see Bubba in a really bad toupee. That would be awesome. That next year, please, a toupee just for Halloween. I won't get right into it, but you remember, if you remember, there's a couple of things that make up Marv that I'm not into. We'll leave that out. We're just talking about the hair. I want to see you on your next Halloween sportscast in a bright, blonde, well-coiffed toupee just to see the phone lines light up at CHML's world headquarters, or CHCH's world headquarters. I'm going to gamble that that's just not going to happen. (laughs) Just like the singing. (laughs) Sorry, I'm a party pooper today. Okay, well, listen, I got got a couple things I want to ask you about from the world of sports that have come up in the last couple days. Um, One of them 
I was alerted to this one after the World Series ended, the day after the World Series. Of course, the Boston Red Sox win. David Price redeems himself and then, in an unrelated note, goes off on the media and talks about what a bunch of idiots they are because they criticized him, even though he was 0-11 before he finally decided to win one in the playoffs. So they, they had cause to be a little critical. Nonetheless, in the video that is posted... As he's walking off the mound, Bob, and you may have seen this video or not, as he's walking off the mound in the deciding game of the World Series, he's doing his thing that he always does where he taps his chest when he comes off the mound, Mm -hmm. and his hand is sticking to his shirt. And there are people all over Los Angeles now sending this out saying, he had stuff, he was using a foreign substance. Your hand doesn't stick to your shirt unless you've got some sticky stuff somewhere on your body. Even if he was doing this, is this a problem? Or does everybody do this now? This is everybody does this. Every time this comes up, I think it's such nonsense. And if his hand was sticking to his shirt, come on. I mean, people got to stop with this. I mean, uh, for once, you know, hey, I'm the kind of guy, you know what, once your due comes, your due comes. And, like, his, his, his train finally came in, and he rode that out to the very end to a world championship. I know he's one of the higher-paid players in all of baseball, and you're right, has received some criticism for you know his lack of performance or wins or whatever, how much you value Justifiable criticism. Yeah, justifiable criticism. I think yes and no. I mean, because I think sometimes when I look at those, look back at some of those Blue Jays games, I thought he did, you know, okay. I mean, but you're, you're, his, his level of play has been so outstanding in the regular season that uh, it's expected to be the same. And that, the same goes for Clayton Kershaw as well, too. I mean, what, what, you were talking about two of the best pitchers of our generation, you know, of, of a generation. Yeah, well, we said in this show the other day that the starting pitching for that Game 5 of the World Series was $65 million a year combined. <laughs> Unbelievable. And neither yeah. of them, at the start anyway, were all that good. Well, David Price turned things around. But here, here's my... I really have gotten to the point where I believe that pretty much every pitcher is doing this. We've seen enough videos and enough pictures over the last little while of pitchers who have a greasy, shiny spot on their arm or something on their hat or whatever else. I think once upon a time, I might have been really bent out of shape about this, but I I really believe that almost everybody is doing something now. And so if everybody's doing it, I don't suppose it makes it right. But it explains why if the Dodgers, because surely the Dodgers would have seen this. Yeah, but, but... And if they were wanting to go after it, the problem is then, well, then who does Boston point at and say, yeah, but you got seven guys doing it too. But this is, this is why this is so ridiculous and why this is a ridiculous you know, comment by the Boston Red Sox or, or sorry, the, the, the L.A. Dodgers or anyone that would like to... Not the Dodgers, they're fans, but just sorry, to be clear, the yeah. The L.A. Dodgers yeah. fans and maybe even a couple of the players that, you know, that wouldn't even bother to say anything. Um... Like, what about, do you think this is all of a sudden, at his age, after, what, uh, 11 or 12 years of being in the major league, that he all of a sudden started doing this? So what about the games that he lost, the the 11 games that he lost as a pitcher? So I'm sure he was doing the same things, right? So all of a sudden, because he wins, now we're calling, you know, people are calling him out? Like, it just it just seems a little too timely and sore sport to me. Well, and, and you're right. I think every pitcher in Major League Baseball has some type of spitball or grease ball. You know, the same way that, you know, batters have, you know, maybe a little targ on their bats or why NHL players, and if you were to measure, do the stick measurement on every single player in hockey, 
it, during games, 80% of all, maybe even higher of all sticks would not pass legal standards. So where is the line then? Because if, if everybody is cheating to a certain degree or seems to be, where is the line? What, if you were managing the other team, what would the guy have to do for you to finally say, we're going to ch- have the umpire check on that? No, I would have to make sure that every single one of my pitchers or batters uh, had nothing, nothing that they could ever be called up upon. That's the only way that I think you could actually do that, Scott. Because, like I said, and like you said, and you're an even bigger baseball guy than I am, this kind of stuff has been going on not just now, but for years upon years upon years. See, what seems to have happened, and it's kind of an interesting progression, is that it seems as though some teams kind of turned a blind eye to it when it was cold weather. Because the batters are up there thinking, I want the pitcher to be able to grip the ball and have and know where it's going, because I don't want to take a 95-mile-an-hour fastball in the ear flap. And so I'll, I'll live with the guy putting a little bit of foreign substance as long as it's sticky stuff. I'll let him put that on if it means he can grip the ball better because then I can go up there with some assurances that I'm batting. Well, that starts as a safety thing almost that will we'll turn a blind eye. But then in the warm weather, Los Angeles was not freezing. Then it continues on. And now I, 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 I actually, I truly do believe that a, a majority of pitchers in the majors find some way to doctor the ball, whether it's stickum or whether it's pine tar or whether it's whatever. Everybody's doing something to it. But, but Scott, here's another thing too, right? When I think about this kind of stuff, video is such an important part of any type of analysis of a pitcher or tendencies of what pitchers do in certain situations, certain counts and, you know, certain innings and ball games. The game is just you know, broken down into so many, you know, statistics nowadays. And like I said, video being probably the most important. It wasn't like, and again, we'll just use David Price here. It wasn't like David Price discovered some type of new curveball with whatever substance might have been on his shirt or arm or fingers. Every team and batter does enough studying to know what is coming. These guys know and can hit it. So it wasn't like David Price, you know, had some type of grease on his hand and was throwing some type of wacky, unhittable curveball that no one in the history of baseball could hit. This is why this argument is, is, is null and void, in my opinion, because everyone knows what's coming. Everyone knows what the tendencies are, and everyone knows what the pitches are going to look like. And I'm sure if some type of pitch you know, had some type of crazy curve on it, the umpires would be instructed to say, hold on a second, that's not normal. Yeah, all it does is it would, it, more sticky stuff. See, again, I'm saying the sticky, if, if you're putting Vaseline or something on it, that's a different thing. Because most of the players, I say, would want the pitcher to have control. But if you put sticky stuff, it allows you to spin the ball more so it's going to move more. That's, that's where the, if you're saying a guy is on his game and it's warm weather and it's not for control to not hit a guy, that's where you can have some manager. See, I, I honestly, at that point, at that point, I w- if I was L.A., knowing that, you know what, even though some of my guys may be doing this, you're desperate. I might have almost called him on it, though, just to try, because the umpires would have to throw him out. 
Now, Boston had a good bullpen, but maybe you call them on it and you see if there's a way to throw Boston off their game because nothing else you were doing was working. Yeah, but it's cheese ball. Oh, of course it is. No, it is. It's a cheese ball thing to do. Like, I mean, it's like... You know, it's like that rule about when a guy's throwing a no-hitter and you throw down a bunt. Like, it, Well, years. do you remember years ago when the Jays were playing against Boston and there was a pitcher for Boston named Oil Can Boyd? You remember Oil Can? Of course. And he wore a some gold chains around his neck, and one of the Blue Jays managers at one point asked the umpire, said it was a distraction, you weren't supposed to be wearing them. And they made him take it off, and he melted down. He and he was a, he was a guy that would melt down. Like that was his. Yes, he was a very emotional guy. He was, phone. but that was a cheese ball <laughs> move then. But it worked. It absolutely worked. Now I don't know that it works in the World Series because again, you got to bring in your pitcher next, and he may be using it, and then all of a sudden they call him on it. And exactly, and then it gets into some type of you know, like it, it gets into some kind of minor league nonsense. You know, very unprofessional in in my opinion. I mean, it just you know. So, I, I don't know. I just I don't think that any anything like that to me is worth even you know concerning. Hit the ball. All right, let's move on to something else that's going on today, which I found to be a fascinating story. Last week, the Toronto Raptors were playing, and they decided to actually it was this week, I guess. Uh, they decided to not play Kawhi Leonard. They gave him a night off. And the idea is that even though he's a superstar making all kinds of money and he's the best player on your team and one of the best in the league, he's had injury problems. And it seems that what they're trying to do is build in some days off to limit the oper- limit the chances that he might get injured again because if he's out, they are a far less effective team. Interesting concept. That's a team decision. They are basically telling him... Kawhi, sit down. You're not traveling with us today. You're not coming to the game today. Just take it easy. Well, Jimmy Butler, who plays for Minnesota for the Timberwolves and wants desperately to be traded, reports say today or yesterday announced that he was not playing tonight. Now, the follow-up stories, the Timberwolves, the team has been seeming to try and cover for him, but all the early stories said he just told the team that he was out. He wasn't playing today. He needed an off day. What do we make of this kind of stuff? Because I kind of get it if it's a team that is trying desperately to keep a guy healthy, but for a player making almost $17 million this year, 10 games or 8 games into a season to say, I need a rest day, seems pretty soft, seems pretty silly. Well, I think I think this is not even a rest day. I think he's made this more than apparent. This isn't a rest day. I'm not playing. I, I Get rid of, trade me. And it, this is a real tough situation here because, obviously, the team, being the Minnesota Timberwolves, want fair market value for him, for a player that, um, you know, this is his last year of his contract, um, and the team, are again, are looking for, you know, fair value. Now, we've heard is some teams, uh, Houston Rockets, I believe, have offered four first-round draft picks. The now, max. That's the max you can trick, you can give up. Excuse me, you can't get anything better than that. Now, mind you, Houston's a very good team, so those four draft picks would generally be lower-end first-round draft picks. And I don't think Minnesota thinks that's good enough. But if I'm um, Minnesota... And, they, and they, I think Minnesota also believe that with their young core players, which also include you know, um, Carl Anthony Towns and along with Andrew Wiggins here from Toronto, um, that, that, that they have a chance to win. Because with Jimmy Butler... They could be a top four team in the Western Division, Western Conference. Without him, like you said, they're 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 nowhere close. They're fighting for a playoff position. 
So as a team, you have every right to sort of say, get out there. But the player has every right to say, I'm not playing tonight. Uh, kind of like Kawhi did. Well, no, he doesn't, though. He doesn't because th- th- someone posted a thing on the the uh, the, the contract, the uh, agreement with the league, the, the CBA, mm-hmm. and players who refuse to play who don't have a reason not to, the teams are in position to take action. And if I'm Minnesota at this point, even though he's a great player and even though he is hugely valuable, honestly, I, I you can't let so a guy well, like this... Me. So what? No, I'm doing more than finding him. I'm telling him that, you know what, Jimmy, uh, you can go home. You're not being paid because you've been suspended with you cause. You can't do that, though, Scott. You, you, you just said there's a CBA, right? Yeah, but, you, so but it you says can, in there the that if a... that can be done is finding the player. So if, you're, if I'm Jimmy Butler, find me. I don't care. We have the same situation going on with the Pittsburgh Steelers with Le'Veon Bell, who did not want to have his contract franchised this year, which would have been giving him, I guess, the top two or three amounts, uh, average amounts of what running backs make in the National Football League this year because he wanted a long-term contract, and the Steelers have yet to pitch him a long-term contract. So he is getting fined every single day, and is now, we have now reached the halfway point of the season. He doesn't care. You can find me. Just keep finding me. I'm not showing up, and I'm not playing. So if the if the player doesn't want to be traded and does not want to to play, you're not going to play because the most you can do is find him. I if I was the Timberwolves, and again, I I would take my chances then in court. I would I would go to the point where I'm saying oh, you're not playing, and we're not paying you because you're not upholding your side of your contract. That's Scott. That's part of the CBA. Well, That's take a chance. You can't you can't just say I'm not paying you. Challenge it. Challenge it. Well, no, you can't. It's part of the the CBA that was written by the union and the owners and, and, and general managers and owners. That's part of it. So when a player fails to report, you find him. That's all that can be done. Teams, There's nothing more that can be done. Teams can suspend players for their behaviors. Sure. Of course they can. So you do, you do that. You suspend him without pay. You suspend him because he's he has now broken... The, the, the bonds with it, he's broken the, the rules of the team. He's refused to play. You tell him you're suspended. You're out for the next 10 games on a team suspension. If you want to challenge it through the union, knock yourself out, but you're not playing. Yeah, I, I, like, I, 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 just don't, I don't think you can, you can I, don't, I still believe that with the suspension comes pay. I do not believe you can. I mean, again, I'll have to look this up because I, I just don't think you can suspend a player without pay, Scott. I just, I look at the NBA right now and like this is this is a, a a great time if you're a fan from around here with the way the Raptors look like they're going to be if you're a moderate if you're a casual fan it looks like a great time to jump on board and watch the NBA but man when you look at the league as a whole it it there are so many times so many things in this league right now where you say you know what I, I'm I'm I don't want to go back to the days of like the NHL where Ted Lindsay and those guys had no power whatsoever. But the NBA players seem to have too much power now to be able to do stuff about cho- about going where they want, demanding trades to two or three teams that they want. The, the, this, yeah, but, but, but Scott, it, the, the, I don't think people are thinking that way. I mean, next to the National Football League, there is no more popular league worldwide right now than the NBA. And again, not only just in terms of people viewing, people with the uh, identification for young people with Instagram, their stars are the most identifiable perhaps in the world. The NBA is, is smoking right now, even with these issues. I mean, you're talking about, I mean, I, I, I find it, I, in my opinion, just, and this is just me, and this is a personal thing, I, I find it hard to 
to get too upset at the at, at players over teams because the, at the end of the day, the players are millionaires and the owners are billionaires, and I'll side with, side with the millionaires. I don't I, look I, again. This is not about making money. All the guys are making money, and and I'm I. You're right. When you've if the owners were not wildly wealthy. I would then have a bigger problem with the players making money. The players are making money for the owners, so pay the players. That the the, the money side, I'm not going to take a big issue with here. It's the idea that you know what I don't want to play in Minnesota because it's not a big market. It's not a sexy market. I want to go to New York or Los Angeles, and that's only where I'm going to go. You trade me to one of those no, two. Well, I, I, yeah, but Scott, I don't and we're hearing that, that from that, a lot of was, players. I, that was not the reason why Jimmy Butler wants out of out of Minnesota. No, no, but it had the, nothing to do with being being in Minnesota. It had everything to do with his chemistry with the players. But where he has said he's willing to be traded to or where he's demanded to be traded right. to are the same as Kawhi Leonard, are the same as so many other players. I want New York. I want Los Angeles. Maybe I'll take Chicago. Maybe. But it's, I want to go where it's a big, big city. I, don't send me to Utah. You better not send me to Utah. I mean, Utah and Toronto probably have become like Siberia. <laughs> if you well, want to penalize a guy, trade him to Utah. It is because I mean, what are your opportunities as as, as becoming more than just a basketball player? Utah certainly not one of them. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. Is there anything to do in Salt Lake City? There's the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. <laughs> they do a nice job. I hear it's very dry in Salt Lake City. They have the Olympics every once in a while. Or at least they did once. I don't know if the Salt the Olympics will ever be coming anywhere any nowadays. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Uh, hopefully. If he's willing to have a little fun today, he will be singing the answer to our quiz question wearing a blonde toupee at the end of the newscast tonight on CHCH. Tune in for that. Uh, good tease. <laughs> Thanks for doing this. What I'm do. <laughs> Thanks for doing it. Thanks for having me, bud. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.